in the podcast of a fortnight ago, I spoke about Pete Schmiggle, who is a writer in residence. He's also the CEO of Recycling Australia. He was the CEO of Lifeline. He's a blogger and a non-fiction writer. And he, a couple of weeks ago, or some weeks ago, wrote a blog post about the challenges people will be facing due to COVID-19. And then his mother passed away from COVID-19 in New York. And he wrote a fairly uh, moving, or very moving piece in the Sydney Morning Herald about his mother and about her death and about how the life that she led and the person she was should be what defined her, not the fact that she was one of the statistics of COVID-19. It was a very moving piece. I really recommend you go out there and and look for it. It's uh, available from Sydney Morning Herald. And I contacted him and asked if he would be happy to have a very short interview with us on the podcast. And I said to him at the time, if it's too soon, just let me know. And he said, no, this is what writers do. When we, when we are sad, we write. And when we are in times of joy, we write. And so he was very, uh, very kind and, and agreed to let me contact him via Zoom and have a chat with him. It was going to be a very short interview. It ended up being a little bit longer than that. But it was a really interesting chat and I think you're going to enjoy it. So here is uh, here's the conversation I had with Pete Schmiggle a couple of weeks ago. Peter Schmiegel, thanks so much for talking to me. Um, let's start by, uh, I just want to pass on my condolences in person for, um, for the loss of your mother. Um, I think a lot of people read the piece that you wrote in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. I, I noticed when I was doing some research uh, that you'd written a piece in your, on your blog uh, mere days before about, about a whole bunch of factors around this idea of isolation and, and so forth. And then lo and behold, three days later, your, your beloved mother passed away. Um, can you talk us through some of the, the processes that went along with this experience, if, you, if you're happy to do that? Death is basically normal. You know, we, we, we all kind of, at some point of our lives and, and indeed our, our kind of creative journeys also kind of grapple with, you know, what is death? What does it mean to me? Um, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of us have elderly parents at, at this kind of age in our lives and we kind of become philosophical about the fact that, you know, these folks aren't going to be here forever. This is what their lives meant, etc. So death in a kind of way is normal. But what happened for our family was, you know, death by COVID was something that you would never conceive of. You know, it's, you know, if you sat around five years ago and said, oh, how's it likely for mom to go out? You know, you wouldn't say to yourself, there's going to be a global pandemic and we're going to be separated by 15,000 kilometers. And the only way that we're going to be able to interact with each other as a family or indeed to be brutal with her corpse is through digital technology. So, you know, that has been a very weird experience to try to, how do you produce intimacy? How do you produce love for the people that you care for? How do you grieve? How do you appropriately mourn when everything is actually happening on a screen? Mm. Uh, it's one, one of the ways I was trying to describe it is it, it's, it's kind of weird in the way that 
being on a glass bottom boat is weird, right? You know, that, you know, there's a, there's a real ocean down there and there are real fish and there's a real ecosystem and stuff like that. But I'm sitting, you know, in this kind of removed position with these fat tourists and, you know, and, and this guy trying to describe to me what's going on there. It's you're there and you're not there. It, 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 it kind of messes with the head and it messes with the soul. What prompted you to write this piece? I mean, obviously you were deeply grief-stricken by the passing of your mother and all these other factors you're describing, but what, what, what was it that made you go, this is something that I really feel like I need to write that can be public? Was there a need you, you saw or was it really a cathartic thing for yourself? What was the main thought process behind doing this? I mean, I think every piece of writing ultimately is personal on some, some level. It's always, you know, a little bit about vanity and sanity, I suppose. Um, but I thought there was a broader principle here that, that I uh, was interested in and I was thinking about when I sat down to write it. And that is um, the people who are dying by COVID-19 are literally not just numbers. <laughs> you know, you turn on the news every night and, you know, you get the Australian statistics of how many are unwell, you get the Australian statistics of how many new cases, how many deaths. You know, it's become a little bit like, you know, a weird kind of drawing of the Powerball lottery every night, yeah? And, you know, I, I looked at all that and I get it. I mean, you know, we have a, uh, you know, this compulsion with facts and data in our society. Fair enough. You know, it, it serves a purpose objectively. But I felt that, you know, it's appropriate, perhaps through my mother, to, to kind of honor the broader collective of people who are dying by COVID-19. That, that, the, that, that their legacy and their memory isn't just, the cause, uh, isn't just formulated by the cause of their death, Right. Now, that these people have achieved a lot in their lives, whether it's my mom or it's anybody else, families and careers and loving relationships and contributions to society, you know, that, that we should kind of reflect on all those things as well as the fact that COVID-19 happened to take them out. Right? Mm. So I think that was probably my primary motivation. Just, yeah. you know, to kind of honor, honor life as opposed to fetishize, mm. I suppose, COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, I, a quote that I often I often use when I'm talking about storytelling theory, especially to, to young writers, is um, Jason Stalin, who, who of course said, um, "The death of a million is a mere statistic, but the death of one is a tragedy." And I, I remember seeing that footage of the those mass graves. That's a horrible term, but that's what they are in New York with the, the coffins all lined up. And um, and uh, at the same time, it wasn't until I read up your piece and pieces like yours that made me actually go. Yeah, these are actual real people who are, and so I think that's partly why it resonated with me. Well, it, interesting that you raised the, the image, right? The, that image is from a place called Heart Island. And Heart Island is a tiny little island. I think it's less than 500 meters long. That's off the coast of the Bronx uh, in New York City. And it's the traditional potter's field of New York City going back to the Civil War when uh, unidentified soldiers were buried at Hard Island. Um, so it's, it's a very gripping and compelling place because it, it, is, it embodies the kind of the history of the dead of New York. Um, and, and again, you know, um, uh, prisoners from Rikers work there. Prisoners from Rikers, our main prison, have been buried there historically because uh, it's the potter's field. I, I guess my point here is, you know, it's a very real place. You know, it, it, there's, 
you know, it's a physical island. You have to get on a boat and get there. There's people who actually take these boxes, put them in the ground. Mm. Uh, uh, there was a story last week in the Times that there wasn't enough uh, PPE for the guys who are doing the burial work, mm. um, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, again, you know, it, it, it's kind of easy in this, in this flood of information about COVID and corona to kind of forget exactly your point that you know that there are these individual tragedies that there are these individual stories that are taking place in this context and it's not just you know this kind of debate uh, on the news by political officials and who people and and it's not flattening the curve mm-hmm. it's human i mean i i much as i would love to get into the politics of all this i'm not going to just because it's not really the, the time or the place to do that except to, to ask you as a native new yorker from from queens i think it must break your heart to see what's happening in new york and, and america at, at large you know it's awful it's awful on so many levels i mean one of the most disturbing stories uh, that i came across was um I'll make it personal. When my mother uh, was recovering from uh, a surgery in New York last, and we spent a long time with her, um, every day we would walk into the rehab hospital, and outside the rehab hospital was a petrol station. And at that petrol station, every day there are about 35 or 40 uh, uh, Latin American men standing there. And, you know, I go back and forth to New York a lot, but still this fascinated me. I asked people, what's going on here? And what it is, it's the practice of contractors rolling up on a casual basis every morning, pointing to one, two, three, however many guys, getting them to jump on the truck, and they work as day laborers for cash because they're all illegal. And effectively, so much of the, the, the building economy and the kitchen economy in New York City relies on this category of illegal people from Latin America. Mm. So, you know, I, you know, I was observing these guys. I was thinking about their lives. I was thinking about, geez, you know, how brutal is that just as a, as a lifestyle to not know where your money's going to come from. You stand there on this corner and hope that somebody decent picks you up in a ute, right? Um, sure enough, one of the, the, the horrible side stories, God, side story, whatever you wish to call it, uh, of COVID is a lot of these guys fear going to hospital during COVID-19. Mm. because that requires them to produce documentation, to talk about their immigration histories. Uh, the, the fear of getting sent out of America uh, is stronger than the fear of dying, right? So there are now documented cases of Latin American migrants living in their cars for up to 10 and 15 days at a time when they've self-diagnosed with COVID-19 and then literally crawling into the hospitals when they can bear no more. And I go, what is happening in this country that my parents migrated to, were accepted as displaced persons to, political refugees to, you know, uh, on the promise that, you know, this was at that point in time, this one place that that literally showed them compassion, that, that gave them a new start after, you know, communism and, and the horrors of World War II and all of that. How have we gone in, in a couple of generations to being a society where migrants are afraid to go to hospital when they're sick? Yeah, indeed. That, that, it's just, you know, and that just blows me away about, you know, how the texture of America has somehow sneakily changed over the last 
30, 40 years. And, you know, and it's not just about Trump. I mean, these things don't happen overnight. You know, something broader is going on there, this kind of fragmentation of, you know, the the social contract that was America. I had a conversation with um, a friend who lives in America. Um, He's an American retired journalist and uh, he he regularly puts up posts on Facebook. He lives in Annapolis and he was, you know, he's fiercely democratic. Um, but, uh, I, I replied to him on Facebook about, uh, his, how much it saddened me to read his posts. And he said, he said, Trump's not the cause. Trump is a symptom. And then he, he sort of went on a little bit further on that, but that's a conversation for another time. Just before we wrap up and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. You were once the CEO of Lifeline and, um, you're still on the board for Australian men's health forum and roses in the ocean. Is that correct? Yeah. We've talked a lot about mental health, especially for men, but let's talk generally um, mental health in the last few years around the drought and, and um, economic stress and, and housing stress and, and all, these, all these factors. That's all kind of shifted slightly, hasn't it? Do you fear that we're going to see a huge upturn in suicide based on isolation and that sort of thing? Look, you know... Um is social isolation a factor in uh, suicidality in our country? Absolutely. And um, it tends to have greater impact on men than women uh, for a whole variety of reasons, probably because a lot of the other factors line up with men, like living in regional areas, primarily relationship breakdown, uh, poor general health, uh, that also is a kind of comorbidity around suicidal thinking. But I am also cautious about you know, just, just kind of drawing a direct line between, okay, we had a drought, okay, we had the bushfires, okay, we're having COVID-19, and therefore we're going to have a lot more people um, who uh, will tend towards suicide. For a couple of reasons. First reason is suicide is an extremely complex phenomenon. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it has been studied for decades, and it is still not well understood in terms of you know, those last minutes. And often it is a case of last minutes, not people with mental health issues. A lot of the time it's these 10 and 15 minute long windows of, of kind of thought processes being wildly different from what they normally are. So, so I think that's one reason is suicide is very complex and it's, you know, it's, it's not appropriate to kind of generalize too much about causality. The second reason is people are amazing. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and, you know, and uh, there, we shouldn't underestimate, uh, underestimate people. Um, to give you a context, you know, so for example, about three and a half thousand people die by suicide in this country every year, more than a hundred thousand attempted. And that means that, you know, 97% of people who attempt, uh, attempted suicide did not succeed for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. And the research shows that they actually go on to have, uh, have completely healthy, normal, productive lives in the main. Yeah. Um, which basically speaks to human resilience. And even in, in this situation, you know, for all the people who might be feeling more isolated and more vulnerable, et cetera, et cetera, it is in fact those same people who actually often find those additional strength and then those additional resources within themselves. They do get on Zoom. They do have a nice chat with the guy serving the coffee, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yeah, my, my, my hope at least and I hope I'm not looking through the world too much through rose-colored glasses at the moment, is that this is also an opportunity uh, for people to reflect a little bit more on, you know, what's really important, you know? Mm. What, what are the connections that I really value and, and how do I actually build them more 
during this time, uh, as opposed to, you know, a kind of view that, you know, I'm a victim of all this or, you know, well, woe is me. I actually do, do have a glass half full perspective that, you know, people, a lot of people are using this opportunity to actually step up in terms of self-care. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the other complicating factor in this is the fact that a lot of people are undergoing economic stress through job losses or, or, or less work, especially, you know, and this is certainly true in the entertainment industry, but it's a true across the yeah. board. And so it's not just the isolation, it's also that huge economic stress that is people who would in the past have gone, well, you know, I'm not a farmer, I don't have to worry about the drought so much, as long as I can keep buying my bread and milk, it's all good. And suddenly they discover they, they can't even afford a coffee. Yeah, and, you know, people like me, you know, need to also be very careful of, you know, the fact that, you know, I have, I have a privileged position in society, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you know, when you look at the data, uh, economic hardship, and disadvantage is amongst the, the leading social factors or contributors to suicidality and to mental health. I mean, you know, this is a, a horrible stat. Um, beyond the Blue Mountains, there are a grand total of three practicing psychiatrists. Right? Three. Three. So, yeah, who are permanently in the country. So all these regional areas and country towns are, in fact, serviced by fly-in, fly-out psychiatrists uh, at the base hospitals and places like that. So, you know, if you are genuinely in the need of uh, a a script, a a medical diagnosis around mental health, you think about the fact that we've basically got to take potentially hundreds of thousands of people in country New South Wales and funnel them through a handful of psychiatrists. And when you talk about a a 15-minute window, for example and you can't get an appointment for three weeks or whatever, that, that and, those things don't and the, work. Yeah, they? and then there's the additional complication that, you know, private clients, people who can afford these things, as opposed to, you know, your, your opening comment, you know, the vast majority of folks, you know, pulling $250 out, out of the pocket for an hour with a psychiatrist, yeah. this is not a simple thing, mm-hmm. you know. And so, yeah, that there is genuine cause for concern that, uh, that you know the the economic downturn that the cure for COVID could be significantly impactful in terms of you know people's well-being uh, mentally for sure. Indeed. Well, look, I'm not going to hold you up anymore because I, I I know you're at work and busy and um, but we certainly appreciate you taking the time to have a chat with us today. And again, all the uh, our, our thoughts to you and your family in this um, pretty tricky time for you. Um, and uh, we'll talk again soon. I hope. Thank you, James. Keep writing. So that was Pete Schmigel. Uh, and if you'd like to read more of his work and his, his words, uh, because he is a very eloquent speaker and a very eloquent writer who's got some real wisdom to share, you can find his blog at Pete Schmigel. That's P-E-T-E-S-H-M-I-G-E-L.com, Pete Schmigel.com. 